both the House and Senate will return Monday uh, because an awful lot of members of Congress are going to Europe to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the Normandy invasion. The House has scheduled its last vote of the week for no later than 10.30 a.m. Wednesday. The Senate will stay in session through Thursday, although I'm betting they'll get out of town Wednesday, too. Two weeks ago on the House floor, the House came back to work on Monday, May 20th, and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, May 21st, the House passed the rule for consideration of H.R. 1500, the Consumer's First Act, and H.R. 1994, the Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement Act. On Wednesday, May 22nd, the House considered H.R. 1500, the Consumer's First Act. After dealing with a number of amendments, the House moved to a vote on final passage and passed the bill by a vote of 231 to 191. On Thursday, May 23rd, the House considered H.R. 1994, the Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement Act. There were no amendments considered, and the bill passed by a vote of 417 to 3, and then they were done. Except that they weren't really done. They had scheduled three pro forma sessions to take place during the Memorial Day recess, and the Senate, late on Thursday, May 23rd, passed H.R. 2157, the $19 billion Disaster Emergency Supplemental Appropriations Bill, and sent it over to the House for consideration. So on Friday, May 24th, the House went into a pro forma session expecting to bring up the emergency supplemental and pass it by voice vote, as has happened a hundred times before. Except they didn't count on the presence in the chamber of one Chip Roy, conservative freshman congressman from Texas, who, I'm proud to add, was endorsed in his multi-candidate primary two years ago by Tea Party Patriot Citizens Fund who decided that on this day, the House was not going to steal another $19 billion from our children without, at the very least, giving us citizens the courtesy of a recorded vote on the matter. You'd have thought Chip had kidnapped the Pope and introduced him to Bourbon, Dancing, and Stormy Daniels. The caterwauling was heard from Capitol Hill all the way back to his district in Texas. Just about every Democrat and half the Republicans within shouting distance of a microphone denounced him for holding up this vital emergency legislation, so vital that it had been delayed for months and months. So on Tuesday, May 28th, the Democrats tried again at the next pro forma session of the House. This time it was Kentucky Republican Thomas Massey who stood up and objected, preventing passage by unanimous consent. Democrats weren't done. They tried again at the next scheduled pro forma session on Thursday, May 30th. This time it was Tennessee Congressman John W. Rose who objected to unanimous consent. And that's why the $19 billion disaster emergency supplemental appropriations bill will get a recorded vote tomorrow night. This week on the House floor, the House will return Monday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider four bills under suspension, beginning with H.R. 2157, the $19 billion disaster emergency supplemental appropriations bill passed by the Senate right before the Memorial Day recess. On Tuesday and Wednesday, the House will consider another six bills under suspension of the rules. In addition, the House may consider H.R. 6, the American Dream and Promise Act. It's set to be considered in the House Rules Committee on Monday afternoon. That usually means consideration of the rule on the House floor the following day and consideration of the bill itself the day after that, which would be Wednesday. And yes, that bill is amnesty for the so-called dreamers. Two weeks ago on the Senate floor, the Senate came back to work on Monday, May 20th. During that week, the Senate processed a number of confirmations and two bills. Confirmed by the Senate were Daniel P. Collins to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, Howard C. Nielsen to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Utah, 
Stephen R. Clark Sr. to be U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of Missouri, Carl J. Nichols to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Columbia, and Kenneth D. Bell to be U.S. District Judge for the Western District of North Carolina. In addition, on Thursday, May 23rd, the Senate took up and passed S-151, a bill to deter criminal robocall violations and improve enforcement of Section 227B of the Communications Act of 1934. The vote to pass was 97 to 1, with Senator Rand Paul voting against. Later that day, the Senate also passed H.R. 2157, the $19.1 billion Disaster Supplemental Appropriations Bill. The, the vote to pass was 85 to 8, and then they were done. This week on the Senate floor, they'll come back to session on Monday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. That'll be a vote to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to consideration of S-1332, Senator Rand Paul's FY2020 congressional budget. If cloture is not invoked, and I doubt it will be, then the Senate will proceed to consideration of a motion to invoke cloture on the nomination of Andrew M. Saul to be Commissioner of Social Security. Then, for the rest of the week, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I think the order of business in the Senate will be the following. Confirmations of David Schenker to be an Assistant Secretary of State, Heath P. Tarbert to be Chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, Heath P. Tarbert to be a Commissioner of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission for a term expiring April 13, 2024. Susan Combs to be an Assistant Secretary of the Interior. Ryan T. Holty to be a Judge of the United States Court of Federal Claims. Rossi David Alston Jr. to be U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of Virginia. And Richard A. Hurtling to be a Judge of the United States Court of Federal Claims. On the border security slash immigration front, on Thursday evening, after a few days of deliberation with his top advisors, President Trump announced a get-tough strategy with Mexico over border security. Beginning June 10, he threatened, a new tariff of 5% would be imposed on all goods coming to the United States from Mexico if the Mexican government had not by then taken satisfactory steps to stem the flow of illegal immigrants crossing from Mexico into the United States. If nothing happened by July 1, the tariff would go to 10%. On August 1, the tariff would go to 15%. On September 1, the tariff would go to 20%. And on October 1, the tariff would go to 25%. Mexico is the United States' third largest trading partner. Last year, we imported almost $350 billion in goods from Mexico. Markets, as you might imagine, reacted negatively. So did Iowa politicians. Mexico imports a great deal of agricultural product that comes from Iowa. Most elected officials of both parties reacted negatively. They don't like President Trump taking unilateral action, which, of course, is one of the reasons President Trump takes such actions, because they are unilateral, which means Congress cannot stop him from taking the action. He's demonstrated during his time in office he prefers to act in ways that don't rely on Congress. Who can blame him? But here's the thing. He has not yet imposed the tariffs. He has at this point merely threatened to impose the tariffs. And his condition for not imposing the tariffs that Mexico take action to stem the tide is totally subjective. There is no absolute standard. So he could wake up tomorrow morning and say, Mexico has met the condition. We won't need to impose tariffs. The Mexican government reacted immediately to the president's threat. Within three hours of President Trump's first tweet announcing the tariffs on Thursday evening, Mexican government had already reached out to the Trump administration, and this week, even as the president is traveling overseas to honor the 75th anniversary of the Normandy invasion and the liberation of Europe, 
Mexican government officials will be meeting with their counterparts in Washington to see if they can't head off the imposition of the first round of tariffs next week. Stay tuned. On the Russia hoax, on Wednesday of last week, Special Counsel Robert Mueller spoke publicly about his two-year investigation for the first, and if he gets his wish, last time. In a nine-minute statement, Mueller took to the microphone to say to his fellow citizens that they should read, I'm sorry, that they should all read the report. He opened by noting that in 2016, the Russian government had attacked our democracy. He closed on the same note. In between, he explained that contrary to what Attorney General William Barr says Mueller told him when they met to discuss the report in March, he was basing his decision not to conclude that President Trump had committed the crime of obstruction of justice on the longstanding Office of Legal Counsel guidance that says the Department of Justice cannot indict a sitting president. The media picked up on this immediately and just as immediately concluded that Barr must have been lying. But as former U.S. attorney and current legal analyst Andy McCarthy pointed out, when Mueller and Barr met in March to discuss Mueller's report, the two were not alone. Barr has witnesses who, in McCarthy's view, seem to corroborate Barr's version of their conversation. Perhaps the most interesting thing Mueller said in his nine minutes at the microphone is that he considers his work complete, and he is once again leaving government service. He made clear he does not want to be asked to testify in front of any congressional committees, saying he would not speak of anything that was not in his report. As a result of his public statement, a few more Democrats announced they would support the launching of impeachment proceedings. Speaker Pelosi continues to oppose such action in the belief that it is likely the House would ultimately impeach President Trump and then the Senate would fail to convict him. And the president could then run for re-election in 2020, claiming to have been exonerated not once but twice, once by Mueller, a second time by the Congress that failed to convict him. The Democratic base will be disappointed in their party's leaders for having failed to rid the country of Trump, and many independents would see the entire impeachment maneuver as nothing more than a political exercise anyway. So it's a lose-lose for Democrats in Pelosi's view, and I can't say I disagree with her from a political analysis point of view. On the spending front, we still don't yet have a spending deal in place, but leaders of both parties in both houses are trying to work together to negotiate a deal that would bust the budget caps and spend hundreds of billions more dollars than they are currently scheduled to spend under the terms of the 2011 Budget Control Act. Stay tuned on that one, too. And that's our Washington Report for this week.